Welcome to the latest, somewhat inevitable episode of the Meltzer Five Star Project. The episodes of the Let Me Tell You Something universe in which myself, the Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorca Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer rated five stars or higher. We were so confident of this once getting the rating it did <laughs> that we genuinely thought about recording it before the next Observer that would have confirmed its rating came out. I sent you a text ahead of time, didn't I, Simon, predicting what scores he would give certain matches. Yes, you and did. And I was pretty much right across the board. So close to... You were a quarter star away from greatness. <laughs> I predicted he would give the Danielson-Okada match four and a half stars. And he gave that four and three quarter stars. And I said... That he would either go four and three quarters or five on the ten-man tag. That's where you'd give yourself your berth, yeah. Though I did lean towards, if I had to stick my neck out, I went for four and three quarters, which is what he did. But I got this one accurate, and no, listeners, I didn't predict he would give it five stars. I predicted and was correct that Dave Meltzer gave this match six stars. Six out of five. <laughs> what is the 120% match we're covering today, Simon? <laughs> I've just got the Simpsons hypnotism clip from Homer at the bat in my head now. But the match that we're covering is for the IWGP United States Championship, and it's a rematch of uh, Wrestle Kingdom. It's Kenny Omega defending his title against Will Ospreay. Once it was called, we were like, okay, we're going to have to put this aside. <laughs> this is. A... It would. T- I wonder what it would take for him not to have given this for... <laughs> For him not to have given it five stars. They had to go down a star to get to five stars mm. in Meltzer's eyes. But, but basically what gave it away was that he said, I listened to the podcast, because I sometimes do that when I want to gauge a sense of where Meltzer is with these matches. The second Osprey Omega match that we're talking about was the second best match of the year and that it had overtaken what had been second place, which was the Brian Danielson MJF Ironman match. Uh, revolution which obviously as listeners know we covered because it, it got five plus stars did it what was it it got five and three quarters i was right yeah so that's when i knew he's going six stars because if he's saying it goes between the six and a quarter star and the five and three quarter star match you've only got one place to really go haven't you <laughs> and it's kenny omega yet again he's not been involved in all of the matches that have gone beyond five stars but i think I might be wrong here, but I think he's been involved in every six-star-plus match, other than Masawa Kawada in 94. Of the 21st century, he has, yeah. So, just Kenny Omega does something to Dave Meltzer, like it's me and 1994 and Cameron Diaz in the mask. <laughs> and I have said in the past that at times Forbidden Door can feel like a little bit of an ant of continuity. I think more so in things like how Brian Danielson presented himself in the Okada match, as an example, where sometimes, and you get it in this in a way, people who are faces are heels, and people who are heels are faces, and so on and so forth. More extreme example of that obviously being CM Punk in the Kojima match. <laughs> I did t- uh, text you, didn't I, going, I didn't know Kojima was Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Before we start recording, we were talking about how so much of art is caused sort of an Ouroboros consuming itself at all times and it's references to other films within films and memes and 
memes generated from other films then being referenced in later films from the memes that they inspired. Yeah. I'm something of a scientist myself. The metification of, like, art. You've got CM Punk in the middle of that match referencing a bit from a shoot interview that happened 18 years earlier. <laughs> because it's an anecdote that makes the rounds on the Twitters and everything at some point. Yeah. But this isn't our CM Punk discussion. That is to come very soon. We've done a bit of a preamble all around the place. But to get to the match itself. That was also a match where I did give it five stars. Which is not that common for me. Simon the Town's five star bike. It's not... I can't help it. I think we opened the gate, all right? A forbidden gate. They said he was pretty. They bought him a drink, you know. I had a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Stop shaming me. (laughs) I did wonder, like, is there going to be a difference? We've had the New Japan version of this match. Will we see an AEW version of this match? And we do. This is a different match. I, I feel like it was a slower pace than the previous one. I feel like the big moves were spaced out a lot more. Mm. And obviously with Don Callis' influence, the storyline aspect of it made it more Americanized. There is literal interference. There is a weapon sort of cheating spot. Although you can argue that there was all the table stuff in the first match. And Japanese matches have plenty of instances where the ref is just looking and seeing yeah. what's going on and not doing There's a lot of leniency in Japan. At least with this one, Don Callis was trying to distract the ref when he did what he did. That's one of the reasons when Jericho had his match with Omega, that's why he insisted it be no disqualification, because he didn't like the ambiguity. He's like, let's just make it apparent that weapons are okay, and let's make it clearly obvious to everyone. The first match's story was this sense of it being a generational conflict. And Osprey trying to jump out of the shadow of Omega as being the super athlete Gaijin. Yeah. That was having the best matches on the cards and pushing the physical limitations of wrestling as far as it can go. And also trying to be as close as it was to a complete wrestler. One that can fly but also do power moves and everything in between. Strikes. Everything. And that the story of that match was that he was Omega's physical superior, but Omega's intelligence and brutality took it to a level that Osprey couldn't match. Mm. And he was able to win through his wiliness. With this match, the story seems to be that Osprey is no longer trying to do the aerial assassin stuff that he was doing the first time because he knows he's the better athlete than Omega. But now he wants to brutalise Omega in the same way that Omega brutalised him at Wrestle Kingdom. He sort of like sells him like a uh, false narrative though with doing that because he comes out to elevate his aerial assassin theme. Well, a lot of that is like they were getting the entrance music all mixed up during this show. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know that John Moxie was supposed to come out to that version of the song. The only thing I can think of is maybe New Japan hadn't paid for Wild Thing. Mm. So for their broadcast to work, they needed the New Japan version of the music to come out. But it feels just as likely they just clicked on the wrong one. And Tony Khan's like, I've spent all this final countdown countdown money. I'm not. (laughs) I saw a great tweet from a Fulham fan the other day going, the reason we can't sign Willie into a new deal is because he's sport final (laughs) countdown for Danielson, isn't it? (laughs) What frustrates you about modern discourse now is that it's so often distilled to just one or two things. And it already feels like the only thing people want to talk about from this match 
is the Tiger Driver 91 sports. Mm. And I don't want to just talk about that. I want to talk about the match as a whole. Like I said, I want to talk about this story that they were trying to tell, which was this being a more violent and brutal version of what they'd done before. Like, the wrestling was almost superfluous to the story that they were telling at times. It's kind of like a diet version of the whole Al Hijo del Vikingo kind of thing. It's in... In terms of like actual on television build up on a AEW television, there wasn't a lot of it beyond of these guys are going to run it back. You'll pay to watch it. We know that, so yeah, job's done. <laughs> well, again, that's why I say that this almost feels a little bit out of continuity because Omega, in theory, his key f- rivalry at this point is the Blackpool Combat Club, but for the two weeks that this was needed for it switched to will osprey i don't know if they're trying to migrate it to don Callis, and that's why don Callis hung out with will osprey for this don Callis isn't going to be accompanying will osprey to a g1 climax i doubt he'll be in his corner if they end up doing another match at wrestle kingdom i don't think they'll bother flying don Callis out mm to be Osprey's mouthpiece, because that means nothing to the Japanese context of the story. If Osprey comes out with anyone again in a, in a Japanese version of the match, it will be his United Empire guys. Yeah, so like for the two weeks of this storyline, Don Callis transfers his look what they look how they massacred my boy sudden parental focus from Takeshita to Osprey. And now it will return to Takeshita. Yeah. I mean, I've said, I think my prediction right now, injuries notwithstanding, is that the blow-off to this will be Osprey Omega 3 at All In and Omega versus Takeshita a week later at All Out. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. I think one of the ways they got away with the whole Callis transfer thing is because Don Callis said, I'm going to like you know destroy Kenny Omega. I'm going to take everything away from him. So he, he doesn't have to be loyal to Osprey. He just has to be loyal to the guy that's battering Kenny Omega. And that happened to be Will Osprey for a hot minute. Well, I think it's also that whole the enemy of my enemy is my friend ideology. Exactly. That's Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. But like I said, Os- Callis was trying to be like super protective of him. Like he's literally cradling the head of an Osprey after he's been hit with the V-trigger in the ropes. Is your initial response... That it's better or worse, or what well, worse is a harsh way of putting it. Greater than, less than, or equal to the first match at Wrestle Kingdom. I'm trying to take recency bias out of my answer. Because obviously the one that's fresher in my head is this one. Yeah, I wanted to watch the first one before I sat down and rewatched this yesterday, but I didn't get round to it. Likewise, really. I would have like could have done with running the first one back as well. I like the character work of Osprey in this one and how he's just like rather than going, I must beat Kenny Omega by being physically and athletically superior than him and like the better wrestler and getting out for like out maneuvered mentally in the first match ultimately this time around he's the one that's like antagonizing kenny he's the one that's calmer about it there's a great shot at the start where in the first match he rushed in and kenny immediately hit him and this time kenny's trying to get him to do the same thing but will's not moving will's taking a uh, leaf out of his former stablemates book and standing incredibly still a la okada well, yeah, I think that's one of the key parts at the start of the match is that Omega's controlling Osprey on the ground. And again, it's the idea of him wanting to keep the aerial assassin grounded. And then there's even a moment at the start of that match where it's like an MMA fight where 
someone whose specialty is the ground has maybe got knocked down, but he's actually staying down, trying to bait yeah. his striking-focused opponent to meet them on their level, and they're not taking it, so they're just sort of standing, looming over them, not wanting to engage too much because they can be brought down to the mat. And that pays off right towards the end of the match. You know, I was saying that when they were doing a, a Terry Funk tribute yeah. at one point at Wrestle Kingdom 1 after Osprey gets bloodied, where Omega's got the fists up and he's doing the funk jabs, whereas Osprey's doing the wild flailing punch drunk yeah. Terry Funk. Instead, in this one, what we get is like a pride homage or pancreas uwfi whichever way you want to put it where they're both a bloodied mess and omega is trying to get submissions out of him he's they're in they're fighting on the mat doing a mat based exchange mm. where omega first gets him in the arm breaker which i think he's going for obviously because osprey has a storyline shoulder injury or well i don't know if it's storyline or not but it got it cost him his place in the new japan cup didn't it yeah it's not storyline he legit has got a bad shoulder but what does Osprey do? Ah, make it a part of the match. Yep. So that I have to deadlift powerbomb you like I'm Rampage Jackson <laughs> to get you out of the hold. But again, it's always that thing of them wanting to show just how varied their talents are that they can do it. What did you think of the use of double blood in this match? Because I was wondering, because it was so obviously the roles were reversed in that now it was Omega that was the hero of the match. I mean, you can argue whether Osprey was the hometown guy. He was the home promotion guy, I suppose, when they had the Wrestle Kingdom match. Yeah. And obviously with this one, Osprey just plays up even more and does his whole Shawn Michaels with the Canadian flag bit. In the first match, especially with Omega, there was like a conceitedness to him. Like, ah, oh, you're not the guy to replace me. And when he did that famous, um, or the, well, the promo I liked a lot, where they um, he goes off on him in the press conference. Kenny's very, like, comes across as a bit of an arsehole as Will's pouring his heart out. Like, I've worked so hard, I have sacrificed so much to keep this company going, and you're just staring at me like a smug little prick. I think almost verbatim what he said. May not have been prick. No, I think it was harsher, to be fair. <laughs> Whereas this time, obviously, it's in Canada. There's the Don Callis element, which obviously turbocharges Osprey being a heel. He, uh, Osprey doing the whole, well, Canada's like a, a, a Canada's a shithole. I want to go home. Bit basically. <laughs> so yeah, it's a different vibe this time round. But in terms of the blood, the fact that obviously Kenny bleeds first leans into the story that they're telling. So were you surprised that Osprey also bled? No, because I think they set their table quite early. It was a line in commentary that obviously mentioned the DDT onto the exposed turnbuckle. In the back of my mind, I thought, okay, well, if he's going to win, and I came into this thinking Osprey's going to win to like draw the series. I think a lot of people did. He's going to have to overcome stuff. Well, also, that's where you get into it, the politics of what this whole thing is and the diplomacy that they have to go through in order to make this work. Because that's the funny thing. We we always have the dream interpromotional card that we book in our heads. But then it's the actual interpromotional card that's realistic. Because let's be honest, your dream match was not CM Punk versus Satoshi Kojima. <laughs> but Satoshi Kojima was a guy that New Japan could have lose and it not be that big a deal. And a guy they didn't need to give the bag to. 
to quote Little K on Twitter. If you were to list all the guys in the AEW roster that you most like to see and most deservedly would be challenging for the IWGP World Heavyweight title, it wouldn't be Jungle Boy Jack Perry that you'd have at the top of that list. But yeah, the politics of this is evident, not just in the fact that how they're both presented, but how Osprey wins. So it's like, to the Japanese audience, Osprey is still the hero, I suppose. The story that I'd be curious to know what the commentators are saying in the Japanese element of it. Mm. Although Osprey, again, he is technically a heel within the New Japan world. He's been less of that in recent years, especially with the Omega feud. So it's also that he has to come back from adversity. So that's probably why he bleeds. Yeah. Because he also needs to struggle and be fighting and trying to survive what he couldn't before. And that's also why he doesn't win after he nails Omega with the screwdriver. Mm. And why, whilst he does get to pin Omega, it takes two Stormbreakers for him to do it. It takes two Stormbreakers, two Hidden Blades, a one-wing angel, a Tiger Driver 91. Like, he, Omega absorbs a lot of finishes. But it's also that case of he doesn't lose directly from the Screwdriver, so it isn't a screw job finish. It's as clean as a screw job finish can get, because they go another five minutes or so after that. Yeah. And Omega said in the recap on it, on the Dynamite that, like, you, the better man won. But there's enough of that ambiguity. Because that's what I'm fascinated by with them. Obviously already setting up. Because Omega Osprey says, was the fact that I know the place. Or something yeah. along those lines. And everyone, including me, is going, Oh my god, oh my god, I have tickets. I could see part three live. Oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> and again... How are they going to present that differently? Is Omega going to be a heel? Because I can't see the London crowd booing Omega in the same way that the Toronto crowd booed Osprey. Is it maybe going to have less blood? Is it going to be less brutal? Is it, you know, maybe they'll do a thing where Osprey gives Don Callis a a kick to the face or something, Mm. either before the match happens or during the match. And then it comes down to them having a proper blow off as competitors as equals. Where where would it even be on the card? Because this isn't a jointly promoted card. It's just this would be a pure AEW card. And would it be for the IWGP US title? So I think it has to be, but then there's the whole New Japan politic element that you add. An extra layer to, if nothing else. Yeah, well, maybe it would be that case of... Because Osprey's going to lose to some people in the G1 climax. And again, this is assuming this that Osprey can survive a G1 in between now and... All in. Mm. So they probably won't make it official until he comes out of that show, uh, that last final show. <laughs> Get him in bubble wrap now. <laughs> so I'm curious as to how you book that as well. It's either going to come out to all, where maybe Omega will win it all in, and then they'll have a final match at Wrestle Kingdom next year that Osprey wins, and then they settle it. So they both got a one all in both promotions. That makes sense. Or. I can see them doing it where Osprey wins at Wembley, and so it goes 2-1, and then Omega immediately gets his heat back, in theory, with a win over Takeshita at All Out. Because, I've said it before, if I'm Tony Khan, I want Will Osprey as happy with AEW... As possible. As possible. Because New Japan have made it clear, we have a new focal point for the next few years, and it's not Osprey. Mm-hmm. Their future is clearly being put on the shoulders of Umino, Suji, Narita. And it's curious that they haven't brought him up yet. But Yui Mora is waiting in the wings. Because <laughs> I don't know if you saw it. They literally, there was a New Japan press release saying these are the new three musketeers. Of Umino, 
Narita and Suji. As a, as an England football fan, you hear that and you think, oh, look, look at this golden generation. I'm like, don't do it yet. Don't say it yet. <laughs> but it is also like, excuse me, but Uemura's just, he's coming soon. And I'm assuming he's going to be seen as as big a star because, again, like I've always said, look at who was the last guy that they wrestled before they left. Suji, it was Naito. With Narita, it was Shibata in the bit in between during his sort of excursion. Yeah. Umino, I can't remember who it was against. It might have been against Tanahashi. And Uemura was against Okada. Yeah. So they obviously see Uemura in that light as well. But as my point is, maybe New Japan would be okay with Osprey moving on after this. They were okay with Jay White moving on. I suppose. And... AEW's schedule will be less demanding of Osprey because Osprey is obviously broken and beaten up. Yeah. But he can't still do the pack thing of commuting for England and everything, which is what he's been doing with Japan as well because he used to have a place in Japan. But then he said, oh, I was getting taxed for two properties. I was like, what's the point? So he just is going from England. And AEW will allow him to commute in a way that obviously life in WWE wouldn't allow him. That's true. Osprey just gets it. He's already a made man in AEW because of these short runs that he's had there already and having the win over Omega. Yeah. He's a main eventer as soon as he turns mm. up. It's all clear and open for them. And as we can tell, you can't build your promotions with the plan that in three years' time you're going to have Danielson or Punk or Omega or the Young Bucks even. Mm-hmm. For various reasons. So you've got to be looking to the future. And even if Osprey's so broken down that he also will not be able to go at 40, you can still milk three or four years out of the guy. So I would not be surprised if Osprey ends up winning this series 2-1. It's quite possible. And again, because this is like a slightly tainted win. So you can say it's like one clean as a whistle win against one clean as a whistle win and the slight taint of the one in between. Yeah, there'll, there'll be the asterisk forevermore. Here's another question. Does the IWGP US title add anything to this? It feels like such an afterthought. It doesn't feel like these are matches that the US title is worthy of having. It feels so much more personal than the belts ever did, really. It, ne- it does not need the belt, no. Part of me, I don't, I don't know how they could with G1 coming up now. I don't, maybe they could get the belt off Osprey before Wembley. I don't, I don't think there's time. Well, that's what that's what I was saying though. With the G1, the logic is always that the champs lose one or two matches, and the people that they lose to are who they're going to be booked against coming up. So you could have Osprey lose, and so the idea is that the IWGP US title isn't on the line for the all-in match because Osprey has to defend it against these guys before he defends it against Omega. Possible. We haven't really talked that much about the match, I suppose. I like the callbacks. I like their DDT onto the steps. Osprey's blood's got such a weird luminous than Omega's blood. And it's not intentional, obviously, but it added to the visual just this bright red like mess across the uh, the ring steps. I really like that. Well, I wonder if it's because at that point Omega's blood will have congealed. Yeah. So maybe that means it darkens. Because obviously it's something to do with the oxygen. Yes. yeah. There's an element of that. But also he bleeds so much more viciously than Omega does. Omega bleeds, but it's the hairline, I think, that helps. Well, I was thinking of this. How often has Omega bled? I can't think of it being a very frequent thing. He bled in the Jericho match. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously he got cut about, but did he actually juice during any of the Moxley matches? Or was it just like battle scars on his back and everything? Did he actually do your traditional nicking yourself on the hairline with the razor blade? He didn't bleed in Stadium Stampede at all. I can't remember the Lights Out match. I can't remember, really. So it's not a frequent thing for Omega. No. Or Osprey, to be fair. He doesn't help that a lot of Omega's matches were against Moxley, who always bleeds. So you kind of get lost in the shuffle, don't you? Yeah, was it his blood? Was it Moxley's blood? Who the hell knows? <laughs> Whatever it was, it was unhygienic. And speaking of unhygienic... <laughs> it was so fascinating seeing this match. Like, Osprey gets it already. He knows how to work to American cameras in the American setup. He does that licking the blood off his bicep and literally looking at the hard cam. Finn Balor had to be taught that from scratch when he came to WWE from New Japan, and Osprey's already getting it. Yeah. Saying those lines and working with the cameras around And antagonising those children, one of which has Kawada's haircut. Well, one of them had Darby Allen's makeup. Yeah, it's weird. Like, 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 I don't know if those kids were playing. I'm assuming they must have been. I don't think they were. He's a stunt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just think he was two kids he saw, and then... Omega gave them the Canadian flag. They just hung a man with. <laughs> they'd just been on, wrapped around the neck and and rubbing the taint of Ross Bray. So not necessarily the nicest thing a kid could be given, but they seemed very happy about it. I learned new things about myself that night. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird to briefly see Kenny Omega as Hulk Hogan. Well, are we going to talk then about the one count then, where he does do the Hulk up? Yeah, well, that's, that's not... Hogan-esque then. I, I find that more as like Kabashi-esque or Misawa-esque, that fighting spirit thing they're trying to do. Oh, it does also follow that rule I said. I think the last time I remember talking about it was the Volta tyler Bate match. Mm. The basic rule is the person that kicks out of one, you know that person's losing very yeah. soon. <laughs> it makes sense, actually, because other people are like, oh, you know, one, you know, just again, people that just don't sit, think, ponder stuff. Yeah. It is not that he's no-selling it. It is that Omega doesn't want to give him the satisfaction... Of losing to his own move. Losing to his own move and losing in that way. So he is kicking out at one, in a way screwing himself over because he's not giving himself that moment to recover. And also because if someone does that to you, you do get fired up and suddenly the pain does go away for a moment. Oh, yeah. Because you're on an adrenaline kick. And he has just been kamagoyed as well. So like, oh, yeah, your mate who got injured. I've just done his finisher to you as well. That happened during the Omega Page Young Bucks match. I The Young Bucks hit him with the double kamagoye. And again, Omega kicked out of that one because it's like, you know. Piss off. <laughs> it's like going after his, his wife. Yeah. Or saying something about his mother. Or many other Freudian analyses you can make. Saying something about Eddie Kingston's mother. You're going to die. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not today, but at some point. <laughs> Fairness, with Eddie Kingston, if you took one of his fries when you went to Five Guys together, you're probably going to die at some point. I know. Maybe not today, but you know. There's a blood feud now that started as a result of that. <laughs> Again, I didn't want to talk so much about the moves because they can just do that stuff. It's funny, second time in a row that the apron Ozcutter is slightly awkward. Yeah. I don't know why that move just somehow seems to trigger them both. It's the lack of room they've got, I guess, but uh, they've done other stuff on the aprons and it's been fine. First time it was like an awkward hesitation or something, wasn't it? And the second yeah. one, it was just very visible that Omega's head didn't go anywhere near the, the mats. That's camera work, though. That's not it. Yeah. Replayed the slightly screwed up move. Yeah. 
Very, but I just there's moments in it where you just slightly staggered at the like 35 minutes into this match, everything that they've done, and Osprey's still doing like a double lee boss cutter. Off the, the 30 minute rope. shout is as Omega's going for the top rope one wing angel. Mm. Well, it's also funny because obviously the other thing to talk about is the Tiger Driver spot, and it does seem like the clever thing that they've done. It doesn't feel like there's as many big moves in this, but also in the first match, it was still like there was, they knew this is the spot. Yeah. With the first one, it's the DDT off of the buckle. Whereas when they do the revised version of it in this one, it's a fair, much safer version of that, really, doing it off the steps, which is... Onto a much flatter surface. Flatter surface, more measured, weighted for, built up to. Mm. And that wasn't even what makes Osprey busted open in that moment. It was the earlier V-trigger into the steps... Yeah. In the builder. And with this one, it's obviously, it's the Tiger Driver 91 that they build it all around. Obviously, so many people are nervous about it. And, you know, I, until they announced that Omega literally has a match against Wheelie Utah, <laughs> at the Dynamite after the Dynamite after Forbidden Door, I was like, okay, so we can go. Yeah. Because they must have done a scan. They have to have checked something after they found out how badly Danielson's hurt. Yeah. But it's funny, though, I've been watching a few old Botchamanias, and there are just random slightly screwed up Hurricane Rana moves that people take in nothing matches. And the bump is exactly the same bump that Omega took in those. But it was just an accident, and then they just keep going. Mm. So it's not like the way that Omega takes it is just, oh, this is a guaranteed neck break. And the bump isn't as brutal. Obviously, it's more as brutal as the Tiger Driver so far. But it wasn't as bad as, like, the Ganzo bomb that Misawa suffered at the hands of Kawada at another point. Yeah, that's true. It seems like he hits sort of side of the head first and then the shoulder comes in very quickly yes but yeah it was scary just the the notion of it and i do think osprey could have maybe done it better way that was a bit more protective yeah the first time i saw it i did do the whole my hands reflex straight to my face like oh my god like second time around i'm like "I, i know it's coming and it still looks gnarly so i didn't have the same reaction but the first time it did get me that reaction happens to women when they get proposed to and men when they watch a Kenny Omega match. <laughs> men when they watch a Kota Ibushi match. Be careful, Kota! <laughs> oh, you beautiful idiot. <laughs> Do you think it's okay that Omega kicked out of that? I think it's just, it's always that logic of if it's not the finishing move, then it's okay, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's not Osprey's finisher, is it? So I, I guess it's fine. To me, it's not egregious. It worked in the context of the match. When Osprey hits the Stormbreaker for the first time and Omega kicks out, you get that startled, I can't believe he kicked out minute build-up, which I don't recall. That doesn't happen very often in Japan. They just like, Mm. they do what Osprey does towards the end of this match, which is like, okay. All right, next move. (laughs) Now I'm going to elbow you in the face Again. It does help as well that you've got Don Callis to make those facial expressions for you. He is, in terms of facial expressions of panic, he is on Paul Heyman's level. Do you agree that Callis being kicked out and then coming back is kind of dumb? I think it's just one of those cases they didn't want Callis to be the distraction, but he needed to come out at the start. But they also needed him to be a factor in the finish. So it's just, you know, if anyone's got to be undermined here, it's the referee, I suppose. Yeah. And you can also argue the referee just, it's early in the match, so 
the, the next pin is not imminent anytime soon, so he has that time to do it. Whereas he can't spend too much time trying to get rid of Callus because the f- match could finish at any second. Yeah, he's got to be... It's it, it's fine. It was obvious that he wanted to get that screwdriver out a lot quicker than he did. That is true. It's weird for me that the security didn't go with him. Yeah, the security just were kind of a non-factor, really. As far as it makes... It makes sense as far as it's to protect Callis and also to protect Osprey against the Canadians. Yeah. Nothing really happened. Yeah, them being masked up and everything, you kind of... It was almost like, should you have done it? It was like um, someone did a breeding program between the Mitchell brothers and the Authors of Pain. <laughs> I guess maybe they wanted to do with show them that they that it was just for the sake of this is what security people like black ops. Types. Yeah, they do wear that sort of stuff, but they're not. We're not trying to hide their identity. You can see like if because there was always that rumor in the build up that Castagnoli was that camera guy with the mask on. Yeah. And then Casagnoli literally stands next to him at Forbidden Door 1. I guess because you can see the eyes and the, and the head, it's no real mystery to it. Yeah. So they were like, don't worry, these guys aren't. No one's doing it. Yeah, I, yeah, that makes sense. It's not Gene Snitsky. <laughs> what could you imagine if they'd done that? <laughs> oh, God. Twitter would be on even more on fire than it already is. What's Mean Zitsky doing in the AEWs? <laughs> <laughs> Rather than kick a baby into the crowd, he kicked one of those bags of flour that like uh, high schoolers have to look after for two weeks. He kicks that little kid in the front row. <laughs> oh dear! It was weird at the start when um, Kenny was doing fist bumps to the crowd, and one of the guys he was around the zone that he was giving fist bumps to. There was a Don Callis for Prime Minister sign. I appreciate our, our Commonwealth buddies making the wanker chants. I love it. You know, I always said that. For some reason, a New Japan V-Trigger just looks and sounds different to an AEW V-Trigger. Yeah. We kind of went the gamut of V-Triggers. Like, the one into the barricade didn't look like it worked well at all. Mm. The commentator's sort of coming for him, because on the replay, they'll like, always hit his shin against the... Yeah, yeah. But there are other ones that are just wonderfully, beautifully brutal. I love that when he's, like, completely sapped of energy at one point... And Osprey does go for the os cutter when he needs him with the V trigger. He doesn't do the leap or anything. He just, I'll just put my <laughs> knee out because <laughs> he doesn't have the energy in him at that point yeah. to hit the V trigger. I think that looks better in a way. Mm. It's like a, a slightly less trolley version of Samoa Joe's walking away. From yeah, it's it just looks more instinctual and like more natural. Uh, it, it, I like it. I, I loved the third one he did to Osprey when uh, Callis is cuddling him, and he's like, oh, "I'm going to kick him anyway." And if you and if you get hit, it's your <laughs> own fault. <laughs> now, Homer, don't you v trigger this pie? Now, now, Omega, don't you v trigger this chav? <laughs> what was a better foot on the rope spot? Omega in this match, or Okada in the Dominion 60-minute draw? Oh, that's a toughie. I'm going uh, Okada. Yeah. Because I think it also worked because his legs were up in the air, so it was almost like, a, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was almost semi-accidental. Yeah. This one is really good, especially, and again, Don Callis worked ever so hard in this match his response the way he's going off at Paul Turner afterwards shouldn't it have been red shoes refereeing this match that was weird because they got red shoes out for the Sonata match 
Yeah, I think Red Shoes didn't want to... I, I, I don't know if it's a um, stamina thing, but... Ah, uh, Red Shoes Red Shoes goes, like, all, all day. <laughs> Red Shoes is up! Oh, no! <laughs> There's a reason he's called Shooter. He <laughs> shot her out of... <laughs> yeah, again, in hindsight, that is odd. Especially because it's for an AEW t- like and a New Japan Championship. Thinking about it, I think we've basically covered everything except what ratings we. I I like that it was a different story. I like that it was focused more on. It was like Osprey. Okay, I'm gonna. I've already shown that. I already know now that I'm a better athlete than you now than you are. But obviously, yeah. you figured out a way to beat me by just beating the shit out of me. Well, now I'm gonna beat the shit out of you. Yeah. So I can prove I can beat you at your own game now. And he doesn't quite. And that's that's why it kind of works that he goes into Omega's territory a little bit. Although, like I said, he doesn't engage him on the mat wrestling. But again, it's it, I like that it was different. Because he doesn't need to prove himself that way. That's one of the reasons he doesn't rush in. He's like, okay, I'm not going to be stupid about this. <laughs> yeah, now he needs to both beat Omega and beat up Omega. Yeah. And he does both of those in this show. But there is that asterisk over him. Mm, exactly. And that's, again, why if you ask me to put money now on who wins the third match, if it happens, I'm just about going to lean towards towards Osprey. Mm, I don't know. For me, it's a... I generally don't know. I'd have to, I, For me, it's a coin toss. Well, that's what's so exciting. If and when it happens, we're going to be there. And unlike the crowd in Toronto, obviously kind of... I mean, that's, again, it's one of those things that, you know, a match is great when even with what everyone knows is probably going to happen, they can still... Mm. bait you in it's like when the Cena chants start poking through in the CM Punk Chicago match that's that's quite good that's quite a good moment because we're meant to be in like home territory for Omega but there are still Osprey chants there's always awkward fuckers yeah until the UK kind of took over Toronto was seen as the awkward fuckers of wrestling crowds <laughs> WWE would always say we're in Bizarro World tonight folks but we brought Bizarro World to them from across the pond it's also a funny thing as well that in this trilogy of matches that we're probably going to have not one of them will take place in the US I like that though that gives it the whole thing an even more international flavour than it already has that's why I said if I was to book Forbidden Door 3 I think the UK would be the perfect place to put it Mm. the idea of it being neutral territory you can take a step down from the stadium setup. you don't have to worry so much about the audience like the the sales figures not being so good because we're gagging for it over here yeah, and it'll be a perfect crowd for it, I think. It'd be a great way to present it. Yeah. You can even have it be like a, a semi-New Japan ring. I don't know. That'd be a fun way of doing it, too. I'll do the whole half and half. Oh, no, no, maybe that's too all Japani. So let's just get down to it then, Simon. Would you give this match, like you did Omega Osprey 1, five stars? I would, yes. It's the story they told. They nailed it expertly. Compared to the more puro essence we have in part one, there's like a little bit of a sports entertainment vibe, but it doesn't consume the story. The fact they interwove that as well as they did is a real big bonus for me in terms of how I mark, uh, um, what my opinion on the match is. Everything was great, um, move wise. Well, move that's a given. Everything's great, move wise. We're looking. I'm looking beyond that. This great story that was told. Different elements to the first story, so it's different enough. It feels fresh enough. And the first, I, I, I'm just going back to how I felt the first time I watched it. I was hooked. The other thing that was interesting about the first one, it, was, it felt like they deliberately left stuff out. You did say that at the time, yeah. 
And I still feel like this has left some stuff out as well. Like, we still haven't seen anyone kick out of the one-winged angel. I wonder if that's what's going to happen at Wembley, actually. That Omega hits the one-winged angel. When he hits it, mm. see where he is in the ring. Yeah. But maybe they'll go one step further. and Maybe that'll be Osprey's way of losing the Series 2-1 but still looking strong. By him being the first person to kick out the one-winged angel. For me, it's right on the barrier of four and three quarters and five. Because some of the entertainment stuff didn't work as well for me. It felt at times like it was too long, but at the same time, that final sequence was the thing that would make me go, like those final five minutes that would make me think maybe I would go five for it. At this point, I'll say it's a penciled in five stars. Okay, okay. But I wouldn't be surprised that if you watch the whole trilogy, this might actually be the lesser of the three, if there is a third. Okay. But it's still just... it's It, it made Osprey a star in America. Oh, absolutely. This might be his Austin Brett WrestleMania 30, although he won, he won this match. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's his coming out party. If Osprey signs up for AEW after this match, he's an immediate main event. Yeah. You could literally put him, make his debut be for the world title. He wins it, and that wouldn't feel out of place. MJF. Oh, I'm not going from a rinkin' and gendy. Like I said, this match also shows that Osprey just gets the personality element to it. The planes, the cameras. He could go to the WWE and work in that environment. That This match proved that as well to me. Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely could. And that's why I said, like, he's going to spark the true bidding war. Because there are going to be three promotions that will want him. New Japan will never want MJF. Not full time. No. And I don't think he'd want to go there. Why would he want to go to a rinky-dink indie promotion? <laughs> there you go, yeah. That'd be hilarious if Tony Khan, like, wins the bidding war of 2024 and then goes, all right, for all the shit you've given me, you're in the G1. <laughs> and then it's just him getting battered by all these people. Going, you, you insulted my, like, honour. That would be funny, him signing a contract and immediately getting... Like, look, I, my prediction is that Wembley, we're going to see MJF Punk. That's my prediction, right? Mm. That will be interesting for how the crowd reacts. Yeah, I don't know. Something in my gut. Don't think we'll get that. I think we'll get something else. Well, if we're not getting Omega Punk, because it's obvious now that they want to go Omega Osprey 3, that might not be where it goes. And if uh, if Punk's not willing to work with the elites, or the elites aren't willing to work with Punk, then the next biggest match for Punk is MJF. But we can talk about all mm. that in our next episode, Simon, which is a return to LMTYS Classic. Yeah, baby. It's all the sugar and additives, although maybe actually <laughs> fewer carcinogens, if you're to believe the papers. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, what are we going to be talking about next week? Assuming no five stars in the intro. Yeah, and obviously we do have a uh, pay-per-view that melts has yet to mark. So cards subject to change, as always. But we are talking about what does CM Punk represent in wrestling in 2023? Or 2024, depending on when we get to release it. <laughs> but until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with their New Year's resolutions for 2024... Maybe Dave's will be to rate a few matches fewer than five stars. How can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter. Where I'm standing on Simon Cross free. Free for the number of V-triggers in a row that caused Don Callis such consternation. My name is Logan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N for another time, another place. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Logan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a six-star time. Until the next time. Bye.
Remember how we should burn